0: Jesus, we thank you that you are indeed a beautiful Savior. A Savior of love, grace, mercy, compassion, even in your power. Speak to us as we continue in worship. Help us to open our hearts to you. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. I suspect that most of us struggle with authority. It starts when we're children. Clean up your room, take out the trash, stop hitting your sister. And we turn to our parents and say, no. And sometimes even if we aren't saying the words out loud, we're feeling them inside. And as we get older, we continue to struggle with authority. It's just that the focus looks a little different. Now it's about the boss who gave us an assignment that we don't want. It's about the uh, the church leader who is talking to us about things we don't want to hear. It's about the the coach who keeps pushing us harder than we want to be pushed. And while in as adults, we have learned how to to respond to that kind of authority by doing what we're told more often than not when we feel it inside we may be doing it act with our actions but we're not feeling it with our attitudes. We struggle with authority. Most of us are thinking to ourselves at one time or another I don't want people, I don't want anyone telling me what to do. And the question that is, that we all need to think about is what does our struggle with authority have to do, if anything, with our relationship with Jesus? Does it matter? Does God care? And I think when we start pondering that question, we find that there are passages of Scripture that help us, and one of those places is in Romans 13 that we just read a few moments ago. Paul begins this section by telling the Romans, everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. And we tend to to look at this passage and interpret it as that Paul is writing to the church in Rome and saying to them, you need to submit to the Roman government that is over you. I've always wondered about that. Because when you read down that passage, he's saying things like the, the rulers over you are good. They're looking out for your best interests. If you do what's right, they will honor you. You only have to worry about something bad coming to you if you do wrong. And I'm scratching my head and thinking, that doesn't sound like Nero. Does it? And that's what intrigued me when I, when I first heard about uh, a new commentary that Mark Nanos has written about Romans... And his point, his idea is that Paul is writing to the Gentile Christians in Rome who are more than likely gathering for worship in the synagogue in Rome. They gather there because it's a, it's a place that, that they can use. There's space, there's quiet. They, it allows them to be under the umbrella of the, Jewish, uh, of the Jewish people. And at that point in time, at least, the Roman government was fairly accommodating to the Jews. And we might think, wow, but there's a lot of animosity toward Christians by the Jews. But in Rome, there doesn't seem to be quite as much. And so what Paul may be saying to the church at Rome is, you need to submit to, honor, respect these authorities in the synagogue. Who are You're using their building, you're connecting to them, because after all... It's the Jewish people who have carried on the faith through the centuries that enabled Jesus to, that enabled the coming of Jesus to mean something and to set the context of it. Because the Old Testament's important to us in understanding who Jesus is. And you need to respect and honor them because even though they don't follow Jesus, even though they're not believers in Jesus, they have authority over you in the synagogue. And think about your witness. To them. How would they ever think Jesus is some someone they want to consider if you treat them with disrespect and dishonor as followers of Jesus? I think that makes sense. But whatever kind of authority Paul may be describing, the point is the same it's it's an idea of submitting to people in authority over us as a witness for Christ. So Scripture says, submit to authority, but there is another side to that. There's another part of the tension. And that is the story that we find in Mark chapter 11. You see the story is repeated in the other Gospels of Jesus coming into the temple. Jesus, this is Holy Week, Jesus comes into the temple. He looks around, and he starts throwing stuff. He's turning over tables. He's throwing money. He's throwing people out. Doesn't sound like meek and mild Jesus that we sometimes sing about, does it? I think there are two reasons why Jesus does that. One of them has to do with the fact that this is a festival and Jewish pilgrims are coming from all over the world to worship because the males were commanded that three times a year on these great Jewish festivals, they were to come to Jerusalem and sacrifice and worship. So you can imagine people who live maybe, you know, days and days, multiple days walk, ten days, two weeks, bringing all of their animals with them to Jerusalem. Riding on ships to Jerusalem with all of their animals. And he sus- I suspect that at some point somebody got the idea, you know what, we could help these people. Let's provide animals for them. And they can just buy the animals from us. The animals will all be approved. They all have the USDA stamp of approval on each of them. So you know they're good. So that you don't have to worry about them you know, not being appropriate for, the work, for sacrifice. So people can come. They don't have to mess with that lugging all those animals. They can come, buy the animals from us, and have them available. And then at some point, somebody's got another idea that said, you know what, we might be able to take advantage of this. And so what ends up happening in Jesus' day, seems like at least, is that anybody who brought their own animal to the temple, the authorities would find some reason to reject it which meant the only animals you could sacrifice were the ones you bought from the temple. And that meant the temple could charge anything they wanted to for those animals. And they did. And so in the name of God, in the name of worship, and following Yahweh, the temple authorities are fleecing these pilgrims who are coming to worship God. Perhaps that's why Jesus says, this is not a den of robbers. But I think there's a second reason also why Jesus does this, and it has to do with the the configuration of the temple. It was made up of courts, a series of courts. The outer court was called the court of the Gentiles, and that was the only place that Gentiles could come and pray and worship Yahweh in the temple. And then there was the court of women, and that's as far as Jewish women could go. To worship. And then there was the court of men, and that's as far as Jewish men could go to worship. And the court of the Levites, and that's as far as they could go to worship. And then the court of the priests, and that's as far as Aaron's descendants could come to worship. And that's where the sacrifices took place. And then you had the holiest place where the high priest once a year by himself could go in and worship and sacrifice. And so you had this succession of courts. And everybody needs to know their place. And as I I understand, I think I remember reading once, that in each of those courts there were a stack of stones. And if you went into a court where you were not supposed to be, somebody would pick up stones and throw them at you. I'm serious about it. And where is this bizarre taking place that Jesus walks into in the temple? These animals and everything that accompanies having animals in there. And the money changers and the yelling and the bartering. Where does all that take place? In the court of the Gentiles imagine coming and trying to pray in the middle of a street market with everybody yelling and screaming and animals and everything else and Jesus says this is supposed to be a house of prayer and he quotes Isaiah 56 in which God says through Isaiah bring all the nations to the temple to worship I want them they're invited to be here I want them to be here the setup of the temple at that time made it impossible for them to do that. And so Jesus cleans it out. And Jesus is confronting the authorities not for himself, but for people who have no outlet to do it themselves. Jesus exerts his authority and confronts these people, not for his own gain, but so that other people might have the ability to experience God and worship God. And Jesus doesn't do this vindictively. I think sometimes when we think of confronting authorities, we're thinking about getting angry. We're thinking about, uh, we're thinking about giving them both barrels with what, everything we've got. But Jesus isn't vindictive here, because if he were, he surely wouldn't pray on the cross, Father, forgive them. He'd pray what we sometimes want to pray. Father, get them. The interesting thing to me is that in both scenarios, the point of what each group is to do is about other people. It's not about it's, and it's about sacrificing what we could keep ourselves. So that other people have a greater opportunity to experience God in their lives. So Paul calls the the Christians in Rome and says, give up your freedom. Because there is a sense in which they're saying, hey, we don't have to do this. These people are not believers. These people don't follow Jesus. We do. We're better than them. We don't have to listen to them. What are they going to say to us? We don't have to. We're not under their authority. We have freedom from that. And and you almost hear Paul saying, yes, you do have, you could use your freedom like that, but don't. Because if you want to, these people, if you care about these people, if you want them to experience Jesus in their lives, show them Jesus. Treat them like they're important to you. Treat them like you care about them. Treat them like Jesus cares about them. It's about Witness. And Jesus is trying to make it possible for people to come and worship without developing a mindset of God that He doesn't want them there. That it costs them money to come and worship God. That they that there's no place for them to come and worship God. But He's inviting them. It's about other people. It's about witness. And it's costly. For Jesus, it's not just his freedom. It's his life. Because Mark says, right after this story, that the chief priests and the leaders of the temple authorities get together and say, that's enough. That's the last straw. We have got to find a way to get rid of Jesus. And that event triggers that. It seems to me that what both of these scenarios are saying to us is whether we're talking about submitting or confronting authorities, we need to be awfully careful about why we're doing that. And we need to be careful about the way we talk about authorities and and the way we act toward people in authority over us. I'm probably going to get myself in trouble for this. But there is a theory of preaching that if people don't walk out mad at you about something, you haven't done, you haven't preached right. I don't really think that's a good idea, but but I think it behooves us to ponder maybe a little more carefully what we post on social media about authorities. We may disagree with someone. We may we may feel like this person is wrong. We may we may have great. Uh, feel like they, they are not they're not thinking like Jesus at all. And there is a way to talk about that respectfully. There's a way to talk about that and the way to, to maybe defend people who are vulnerable and, and to be a voice for people who have no voice without being vindictive toward people that we may disagree with or worse. I think it's important for us to think about our witness. If somebody who wasn't a believer read what we post, would they think we were a believer? Would they see Jesus in us? Would it make them say, that's the kind of person, that's the kind of life that I want to live, that I want to know more about that? Or do they say, you know, they're just like everybody else? And the words that we use with each other about authorities. I think if we need to confront an authority, we ought to do it face to face. And recognize that confronting authority may cost us something. I think we want to live in such a way that that we can say whatever we want to and there are no consequences to it. But when you look at Jesus, there are a lot of consequences. And our motivation is not, it'll make my life better. My motivation is not, I'm just, I'm just angry and I've got to lash out. My motivation is, there are people who aren't able to see Jesus. There are people whose lives are being torn apart. There are people who have needs and they can't speak for themselves, so I want to be a voice for them. I think at the heart of this is a, is, is a need in us to learn Submission. And you can submit two different ways, at least. Submission can be resignation or it can be relinquishment. When submission is resignation, we do it, but we're not happy about it. And we're only doing it because we have to. But relinquishment is giving it away. It's submitting because we want to, it's submitting because we love, it's submitting because we care. It's submitting because it's the right thing to do. I think all of us are called to, to learn that. It astounds me how Jesus seems to talk about that, about himself. He I mean, starts when he's young. Luke writes in, in chapter 2 about Jesus going home with his parents, and it says that he was obedient to them. Another translation says he submitted to them. But it doesn't stop when he's a child. As an adult, in John's gospel, Jesus says, "I don't do my own thing. I'm not. I, I have. A, I submit to the authority of my father in what I do and what I say and everything about my life. I live in submission to the authority of my father. If that's the mindset of Jesus. How much more us? Do we need that? Now it doesn't mean that submitting to authority means that." that the authorities are more important to us than God is. When the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit in the second chapter of Acts, they begin preaching in Jerusalem. And you get to chapter 4, and they are preaching all over the city about Jesus. And so they are arrested by the religious leaders. And they're brought in and interrogated. And the outcome is they say to them, look, if you'll stop preaching about Jesus, we'll leave you alone. And they say to them, look, we have to obey God, not you. We cannot stop talking about Jesus, even if it costs us, because our higher authority is Jesus. It seems to me that what they're saying is is almost just a recurrence of what we see in the third chapter of Daniel and the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The king makes an idol and says, when they hear the music, everybody bow down. And, and some guys come to the king and say, there's three of them out there, they're not bowing down. And the king calls them in and says, all right, guys, look, I like you. I'm going to give you another chance. Somebody start the music. You guys bow now and we're good. I say, oh, king, we can't do that. We know that not bowing down means we're going to end up in this furnace, but God can rescue us. But even if he doesn't, we have a higher authority. You know one of the things I find interesting about that story is they're very respectful to King Nebuchadnezzar. In spite of the circumstances, God is their higher authority. We can disagree. it doesn't mean we agree with people. we just treat them with respect and kindness. And compassion, because our ultimate goal is that they will see Christ in us and want Christ in them. Embracing this this tension of about authorities is really a declaration that that we are pledging our lives and allegiance to Jesus that Jesus is our highest goal, our highest priority. He is everything about our lives. And our lives are designed, we desire to worship him with every part of our lives, including how we treat those in authority and how we think about that authority in relation to people around us who have needs and burdens and might need our voice. It's about a relationship with Jesus and surrendering to Jesus. I think that's partly what Paul is writing to the Ephesians when he says, submit to each other. Why? Out of reverence for Christ. Because Christ in you gives you the ability to surrender to them. Gary Thomas says that rebellion can become a habit-breaking a a, a habit-forming attitude. It becomes a hard habit for us to break, and we start rebelling here, and then we start rebelling here, and it just keeps growing and growing and growing until what we're really doing is rebelling against God. I wonder if that isn't something of what John is saying when he writes in his first letter in the fourth chapter, and he says, if you say you love God but you hate your brother and sister... You're a liar. Because how can, you, how can you hate your brother and sister that you see right in front of you and love God that you can't see? And I wonder if we could paraphrase that by saying, if you are unwilling to treat authorities in the spirit of Christ that you can see in front of you, how do you possibly think that you're living under the authority of God that you can't see? Why do we do that? Why is this important to us? Why is it important to God? Because there is something in our, our willingness to, to surrender, to submit to authority, and to live in this kind of, of confrontation to authority that looks like Jesus. There's something in this tension that is declaring Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is Lord of our lives and that Jesus is Lord of all lives. Jesus is Lord over the rulers and the authorities of this world and the ruler and the authorities in our lives. And he's the ruler over, as Lord over us if we're in a place of authority over others. Because ultimately, Jesus is Lord. And when you know that Jesus is Lord... You don't have to live in anxiety and fear and vindictiveness. You can be free from that. We can, we can operate in a different mindset than the rest of, of the world operates. I think you see that in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're coming to arrest Jesus, and Peter, always the one, says, somebody's got to do something here. And what does he do? He grabs his sword, and he swings it at the servant of the high priest. He's, fortunately, just cuts off his ear. And Jesus, putting it back, rebukes Peter. And he says, that's not how my kingdom operates. And you get the sense that underlying Jesus' rebuke is he's saying nobody ever comes to faith through a sword. And they ask him, well, how do they come to faith? You can almost hear Jesus saying, give me a few hours and I'll show you. And give me a few days, and I'll show you why you can live your lives and surrender to. Because Jesus is Lord. It's what Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. In the first chapter of his letter, he says, I pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated Him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now, He is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made Him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. Maybe the essential question for us today as we think about authorities is with our lives, our attitudes, our actions in our heart, who's Lord? who is Lord. There is a freedom about authorities of giving ourselves away when we know, when we believe that Jesus is Lord. Father, thank you so much that Jesus is Lord. Living in His Lordship. Give us grace to embrace this tension to the power of Your Holy Spirit. Amen.